0: So if you would follow along, Romans chapter 8, I'm going to start reading in verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What magisterial words these are for believers. What security these words bring into the lives of Christian believers. It was Charles Spurgeon many years ago, the Prince of Preachers, and he was preaching in October of 1876, and he felt inadequate to preach the text that was before him. I think in that particular case, it was Luke Luke 23, I believe. And, And at the end of this sermon where he did his best to do justice uh, to that text, here's what he said, his closing words of the sermon. Alas, I have but stuttered and stammered compared with the manner in which I hoped to have spoken. I may have failed in expressing myself, but God can bless the word nonetheless. The subject is worthy of an angel's tongue it needs Christ himself completely to expound it. And if he felt that in Luke 23, I most certainly feel that. (laughs) In Romans chapter eight, I think it was John Piper who said years ago, made an argument that the greatest book in all of the Bible is Romans, and the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible is Romans chapter eight. So here we are on holy ground. These are amazingly, Comforting, assuring words. And and friends, if we examine this text and don't come away exalting in the God it reveals, we've missed the point of Romans 8. This passage is not here for us to scientifically uh, dissect it to to explore it in a detached way. This passage wants to reach up out of God's word, grab you and pull you into joy in Christ and pull you into security in Christ. It wants to change. Our lives. In this sense, you know, Romans 8, we looked at this last week, how the Christian is thought of in this text, particularly as a child of God. And the same is true all the way through Romans 8, to the very end of Romans 8. And in one sense, it's as though God is saying to us as children, all of us are children before God, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, and God is saying, open up your hands. And he's saying, I want to give you two truths, and I want to close your fists over those truths. And if you hold on to those truths, you will persevere to the end. These truths will hold on to you as you hold on to them. And the first truth that God tucks into the hand of the believer and closes his fist is this one. We belong to God. We belong to God. So... What is the believer in Romans 8, verse 28 through 39? The believer is a child. We are heirs with Christ. He is our older brother in verse 29. The believer is chosen in verse 33. The believer is justified in verse 33. The believer is loved in verse 37. And the believer is safe in verse 39. Look, this is just all over the life of the believer, all over the assurance theme of Scripture that we belong to God. We are immovable in his grace. We stand in his grace. Now, we need to notice where he begins in verse 28 because verse 28 is claimed by everybody but doesn't belong to everybody. Look at verse 28. It says, all things work together for the good of those who love God. It's not promising all things work together for the good of everybody on planet earth. It's promising all things work together for the good of those who fit this description, who love God. So the question then becomes for us just to think about is, do you love the Lord? It begs the question, do you love the Lord? And if you do, if you genuinely love the Lord, this passage says, then everything is working together for your good. God is pressing the entire universe into the service of your final salvation. Everything is working together for your good. There's no way around it, meaning your spiritual good, not your circumstantial good necessarily. This, this passage is not promising an easy ride through life. Right? How do you know? Because everybody's being slaughtered in verse 36. This isn't your best life now. Everybody's dying. He's talking about famine and nakedness and distress and peril and danger and sword. That is not a fun life, right? But he's saying in the midst of even that, the believer's feet are held firm in the storms of trial. And it says, if you love the Lord, everything in God's sovereign grace is pressed into the service of your final salvation. How do you know you love the Lord, right? So that, that's, that becomes the next question. How do you know you love the Lord? Let's just start here. You love the Lord when you strive to be like him. That is an overflow. It's not a chore it's an overflow of those who love God. right? Do you remember the age you were when you wanted to be like your parents? Right? I, I remember, even as a kid, I've, I've got pictures in front of our house on Elmwood Parkway on Easter Sunday morning, and you saw not one, not two, but three Mason boys in three-piece suits. There was Dad in his three-piece suit. There's my brother, he's nine. There's me, I'm seven, and I've got the vest on, button, whole thing, right? It was like, what's dad wearing? And we all put it on. Nobody forced us to. It was like we wanted to do that. I remember uh, driving around town one day with, with my dad when I was a kid. And, uh, and we're probably rocking to Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir or Sandy Patty or something, one of the great options in the 80s. And we're listening to this music, and dad's hand, the window's down, dad's hand is out. And he's just opening and closing his hand. I remember getting home and asking my mom, what is dad doing? What's the hand thing that dad is doing? And she said, your dad loves to worship while he's listening to the music he's worshiping. Now, look, if at my age now, I'd be like, mom, he's feeling the wind. Like, that's we all do it. You don't have to be like super spiritual about it. Maybe he was, maybe whatever. Anyway, we don't have to solve that today. Whatever he was actually doing, here's what happened. The next time we were on the road with the windows down, there was a hand protruding from the left side of the green station wagon, and there was a smaller hand protruding from the right-hand side of the green station wagon, and both were doing this simultaneously, right? right? You remember how old you were when you wanted to be like... Your parents, right? Ephesians chapter 5 says that's the beauty of innocence as children of God. It says, Ephesians 5, 1, as dearly loved children be imitators of God. It's the impulse of those who have been loved by God the Father. The New Testament is entirely unembarrassed about children of God striving to be like Him. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And, And the promise here is all things work together for the good of those who love God, for all of his children. So, so we can know that. Here's something else that we can know. If you love the Lord, he loved you first. If you love the Lord, he loved you first. So that, that word in verse 29, whom he foreknew, that is, that is not uh, about God traveling into the future, as it were, with his omniscience. And watching how things go down uh, and seeing who's going to love me and then I'll just set it so that I love them back. I'm going to travel into the future, do some reconnaissance, travel into the future, do some data gathering, find out who believes in me and then I'm going to choose them. That's not what this scripture is talking about. How do you know it? Because scripture doesn't say he loves us because we first loved him. Scripture says what? We love him. Because he first loved us, he started it. He's, his love made the first move. He is uh, a God whose love is the initiating love. It is not a responsive love. It starts this whole thing called the Christian life. He loves us to life. Look, just think about this in light of the earlier teaching that we could pick up in Romans chapter 1, and 2, and 3. So just think about it. If God hypothetically did travel into the future, What would he find out there in the future? All he would see in all directions, everywhere on planet Earth, is he would see people where no one is righteous, not even one, no one is doing good, and no one is seeking after God. That's all he would find. That reconnaissance mission would just reveal there are exactly zero people who want me. Zero people who want to trust in my son Jesus Christ. So this is not, this foreknowing is not data retrieval. It means to choose in advance. It means to love in advance. That word even describes the same root word that's used here describes marital intimacy in some text in the Bible. For example, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew. It's the same root word. Knew Eve and she conceived. It's more than just kind of a platonic mental knowledge. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. That's the same word that's used here. It means to choose. Here's another passage, Genesis 18, God is speaking. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have, it's the same word here, known him, or it's translated chosen him, so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of God. Of the Lord. This word knowing is sometimes used in scripture of the love of God that is so powerful that it engenders the response that it seeks. It secures a response in those who experience it. Here's a classic text where Jesus is speaking in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I, same word, know them, and they follow me. This knowing engenders a following. It is a powerful word, this knowing. In other words, God's love is not responsive. It is initiating. It is initiating. It begins everything, right? We studied this when we looked at Ephesians last year. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read these words in verse 4 and 5. Even as he, that is God, chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then it says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Christian friend, if you are in Christ, God loved you before you believed. God loved you before you were born into this world. God loved you before there was a world That's what Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 is saying. One of the greatest theological minds of the 20th century, a man named Gerhardus Voss. And he was talking about Jeremiah 31, where it says, where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And here was Voss' comment. He said, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. That'll make your head explode if you think about it too long, right? Only God can pull that off. That's why he's worthy of worship. We don't have, we're not gonna stand in heaven and have ourselves to thank. (laughs) We will stand in glory and we will have Christ alone to thank, grace alone to thank for our salvation because he loved us first and his love beget, led to our love. The next point is this, the chain of our redemption is strong. The chain of our redemption is strong. So you think about how genuine believers in Christ are referred to in this passage. They are described as foreknown. They are described as predestined and called and justified and glorified. And the reason that theologians for the, last few centuries have referred to verse 30 as the golden chain of salvation is because every link in the chain, none of them fail. They are equally strong as you move along from foreknown to heaven, no chain link breaks. There is no weakest link. They are all mighty, right? Those are, Just look at the text. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. In verse 30, those he Predestined, he also called. None of the links of the chain have broken. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. How many Christians fell out when we moved from foreknowledge to heaven? Zero. All those whom he foreknew, he predestined. All those he predestined, he called All those he called, he justified. All those he justified, he glorified. And by the way, glorification, that word, is future for believers. And yet it's used as a past tense verb to say it's as if it's already happened. That's how solid and secure your salvation is if you're in Christ. It's as if you're already glorified, already in heaven. Here's what J.I. Packer, one of the great theologians of our generation, says about that past tense verb that Paul uses. The past tense is meant to let us know that it is absolutely impossible for our glorification not to happen. Such is the sureness and certainty of the Christian hope. We belong to God, and that really perfectly sets up the second truth that God places into the other hand of his child so we belong to God and he closes your fist over that and then in the other hand he places another truth namely we are held by God we belong to God and we are held by God in in the late 1500s a group of pastors came together you know the Bible was just being printed in the language that could be understood by the people and so the Bible really wasn't understood or known by lots of Followers of Jesus, these newly minted scriptures. And so this group of pastors said, how do we quickly expedite a knowledge of the scriptures to people who just got their hands on the Bible for the first time? And they said, let's create a catechism where we ask a question and we answer the question. And we give them tons of Bible verses to see that we're not making this up. And that catechism written in 1563 was called the Heidelberg Catechism. And then they're sitting around and they're saying, all right, we're gonna publish this thing soon. Where do we start? Where do we start, these these believers, in developing an understanding of the essentials of the Christian faith? And here was the very first question. What is thy only comfort in life and in death? And here's the memorable answer they gave to young believers to imbibe, to think about. What is your only comfort in life and death? It's this, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own. But belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. And what passage do you think they were thinking about that day? This passage. All things will be pressed into the service of your final salvation if you are in Christ. Here's the truth of it salvation is from God and for us. Salvation is from God and for us. So, that Heidelberg Catechism sees the whole structure, if you will, of soteriology. That's the doctrine of of salvation. All the passages that speak to salvation they hang on, on this metaphor of God giving a gift to his people in Christ that makes Christians secure. And they got that impulse straight from the Bible. They got that impulse straight from Romans chapter 8 because there's just all this glorious salvation theology packed there in verse 28 and 29 and 30. And how does Paul lower the landing gear and bring it in for a landing into the Christian life? He brings it in for a landing by saying, all right, if you're hearing what I'm saying, I want to ask you four questions now. And these questions are deeply relevant. Verse 31, question number one. If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 32 is question number two. If God didn't spare his own son, how will he not also with him grant us everything? If God paid for us at the greatest possible cost to himself, you think he's walking without you? You think he's, he's bringing everybody home and not bringing you home? He bought you. Verse 33, question number three. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What is Paul saying? He's saying, find a higher court. I'll wait. Right? He's leveraging assurance from this reality of there is no accusation that can override God's declaration. And the fourth question, if all this is true, and it is, verse 35, who can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And the answers to these questions are, are glorious. The answers to these questions are rhetorical. That's the beauty. They're gloriously rhetorical because they're, they're obvious. We can't miss the answer to these questions. They're set up in a way that we're going to get the answer right. No one can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, right? But we need these truths and those four questions precisely because of where Paul goes next. And where does Paul go next? He goes dark. He goes into a world that's filled with suffering. This world is filled with pain. That is so clear in our passage, right? Because right after Paul asks the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ, he says, well, let's just pick the big guns. Let's just pick, he shows us the forces that are arrayed against us to destroy our confidence in Jesus Christ, and he picks the big ones, right? Can affliction, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. That's uh, that's the A team, right? Those Those are the most threatening powers in the universe, for certain in the first century. Those are the The big ones, the ones that keep you up at night. Famine, danger, sword, affliction, distress, persecution. And then he goes on to say, you see next, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. These promises in Romans 8 are coming home to believers' hearts in the midst of great peril. I'm reading a book by a Christian author named Zach Eswine, he, he wrote a, some, a number of books, but the one I'm reading now is called Sensing Jesus, and the subtitle is Life and Ministry as a Human Being. And it's a beautiful book, and he talks in the book about what, something he calls the inconsolables. And the inconsolable things are, are the sins and miseries that will not be eradicated until we're in heaven. And here's what he says. The presence of inconsolable things reminds us that healing is not the same as heaven. Miracles are real and powerful, but they do not remove the inconsolable things. A soldier survives combat only to die in a car accident on the way home or 40 years later of cancer. Miracles never remove our need for Jesus. Life has a way of saying, you can't make this place feel like heaven because it's just not gonna be. There are hardships we're gonna experience in this world that, that can be fixed by money. And then there are hardships in this world that no amount of money you have, no riches, no wealth, no power people you have access to can fix because they're the inconsolables and they're not going away. They're here, and they're here to stay as long as this world isn't heaven. Romans 8 is deeply realistic. Matter matter of fact, the metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 8 to describe the world is the world is a slaughterhouse. He says, we're we're being killed all day out here. We're we're like sheep marching toward the slaughter. That's how the world feels for us as Christians, right? Until... Until we find ourselves upside down in this world, out of our depth in this world, experiencing suffering that we can't, we can't account for, we can't make it right, until that happens, Romans 8 is just going to feel like syrup. It's just going to feel like sentimentality. It's not going to register hope in the lives of believers. I read, um, I read an account of an abuse survivor this week, and she wrote these words. She said, yes, yes. I have a hard time with the biblical teaching concerning forgiveness in light of what was done to me. But then she said this, my greatest struggle, however, is trusting the character of God, and my second greatest struggle is feeling worthless. The inconsolables. Right? And, and you know what's helping her right now? when she shares in that article? Romans 8. Romans eight is coming to her rescue. Romans eight is saying, I know it's hard to believe, but God is good and God is for you. And his grace is gonna press even this into the service of your final salvation. He loves you, nothing can separate you from his love. Like what chapter in the whole Bible sings and convinces us of the goodness and love of God toward us better than Romans chapter eight. It's bookended. Because we haven't read in the entire chapter in one, in one moment, we miss this. But it is bookended by the greatest problems in all the world. The greatest problems in all the world, whatever you might feel like the greatest problems are in the world, the greatest problems in the world are in Romans 8. At the very ends, in the beginning and at the end. And the biggest problem in the world is we stand condemned under the judgment of a holy God because of the sins that we've committed against him. That is the biggest threat to planet earth, is that we deserve to be condemned for our many sins. And then the other great problem is related to that one, and that is that we are estranged from the God who is life. We can't have life unless we're connected to him, and we're estranged from him, so we are in this world fatherless. And this passage solves both problems because here at the very beginning he's not even one sentence into Romans 8 before he says there is no condemnation and at the very last sentence of Romans 8 he says and there is no separation no condemnation because of what Christ has done no separation because you're loved by God forever your two problems are both solved by the gospel (laughs) This is why security comes flooding into the life of the believer. The more we understand, I will never face judgment. I will never be abandoned. It's impossible. This world is filled with pain. God's promises remain. God's promises remain. John Campbell Sherp was born in 1819. He eventually became a professor of poetry at Oxford, a very gifted a uh, writer wrote a lot of poetry and only gave the church one hymn. He was a believer in Jesus. He wrote mostly poetry, but he gave us one hymn. and the one hymn lives right at the intersection of verse 36 and 37. It lives right at the intersection of the inconsolables and the unchanging God." Here's what he wrote: "Twixt gleams of joy." so between gleams of joy and clouds of doubt, that's where we are. Our feelings come and go. Our daily state is tossed about in ceaseless ebb and flow. No mood or feeling, form of thought is constant for a day. But Thou, O Lord, Thou changest not, the same Thou art always. Thy purpose of eternal good let me but surely know. On this I'll lean, let changing mood and feeling come or go. Glad when thy sunshine fills my soul, nor sad when clouds o'ercast, since thou within thy sure control of love dost hold me fast. Theology in Romans is not stuffy, dry dusty concepts. It is God catching weary believers in the mighty arms of grace. That's Romans 8. Look, there is so much assurance from God in every page of Scripture, and it's so concentrated in Romans chapter 8. And if I could have one wish for us as followers of Jesus and members of the church at Brook Hills, it would be for every genuine follower of Jesus Christ to be so thrilled By the love of God toward you personally that we can say, and the rest was history. Convinced of God's love, they loved not their lives even unto death. Convinced of God's love, they were as humble as they were fearless. Convinced of God's love, they loved him to the end and they had otherworldly joy. Convinced of God's love, they made much of him to the ends of the earth. Right? Everything's downstream of that reality. In other words, what, what do we want the Church of Brook Hills to be other than a place that is filled with gospel joy? So that the word gets out on the street to people who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And, and the word got out and said, hey, if you need hope, you need to get in there. You need to know those people, let them share the hope that they have with you. If you want a preview of heaven's joy, you need to watch these people sing. Pull up on a Sunday morning, pick any random Sunday, it doesn't have to be Easter, pick any random Sunday and watch these people sing like they're redeemed. Wouldn't that be awesome? True story, in 1631, it was, seemed like a normal breakfast at the, the family of the Bruce family. Robert Bruce was a minister in Scotland. He was gravely sick for whatever reason, at breakfast that day, he just knew this is my last day on earth. And so what did he say? He, he, he asked his daughter to go grab a Bible. And here's what his words were to his daughter. Cast me up to the 8th of Romans. I have had breakfast with you this morning. I will have dinner tonight with Jesus. And he put his hand on Romans 8, on that page of Romans 8, and he said, I die believing these words. That's a great way to die. That's a great way to live. I live believing these words. These words explain everything about my Christian faith. Everything about my joy, everything about my hope, everything about my obedience and mission, it's all explained right here. Look, Romans 8 is a salvation that's bigger than you could ever dream of. Romans 8 is God kicking the door down and saying, I'm snatching you out of fire, and I'm doing it now. It is a God who is in charge. He's choosing you. He's loving you despite the million reasons you gave him not to, and he just comes flooding in. Romans 8 is your one-stop, stem to stern, titanium strength salvation who wouldn't believe who wouldn't believe in jesus christ in light of what's on the offer right if we open up the baptistry who wouldn't meet me by the water and say i'll put my trust in this jesus christ put your trust in christ turn from sin whatever it is you're holding on to five minutes ago jesus is the one put your trust in him and let's be a church that's secure that's banking everything on these promises